Will you stand with me as we read God's word today from the book of Matthew? Picking back up in chapter 5, this time I won't leave you on a cliffhanger. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, help us to hear what you have to say to us today. May we have soft hearts, open ears. May we be eager to hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. My apologies, I forgot to get my slides ready. So, here we go. All right. Losing is better than winning. Losing is better than winning. I told my kids to be ready for that. Because uh, even when I say that, the insides of my insides, oh, they just cringe. They're like, no, 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 no. Losing is not better than winning. Last night, Josh and Casey Leitner invited our family over to watch the uh, Indiana-Ohio State basketball game. And uh, Indiana won. And uh, it, was, it was quite nice. So for me to stand before you and, and declare that losing is better than winning, oh, it's hard for me to say that. And we understand winning. We like winning. We really do. I, I remember um, in 2008 watching the, the Beijing Summer Olympics, and Usain Bolt uh, won the 100-meter dash and set a world record in the process. He's sent broke, since broken his record, but he, he was going so fast. He finished with a time of 9.69 seconds, but he was so far ahead of his competition that he started celebrating before he crossed the finish line, and he slowed up a little bit. They estimate that if he hadn't slowed up, he would have been able to get a time of 9.52 seconds. Just absolutely incredible performance. I remember watching that and thinking, I can't believe what I just saw. I mean, it was like this moment of, wow, it was incredible. Tons of fun to watch. We love winning, and, and his celebration was a ton of fun. But another thing that we sometimes get to watch in sporting events, and uh, for example, this past uh, uh, Olympics in Tokyo, the t- t- uh, 2021 Tokyo Olympics, in the men's 800-meter semifinal, we got to see a true act of humility. It was pretty incredible to see as well. 
So in that 800-meter uh, uh, semifinal, Botswana's Nigel Amos clipped the back of U.S. runner Isaiah Jewett, the back of his heels. That caused Jewett to fall. And then, of course, Amos was running behind him, and so he then tripped over Jewett, and they're both laying on the ground. Now, Jewett could have lashed out in anger, because obviously that's pretty frustrating to have your Olympic dreams and hopes dashed in a moment in something that wasn't your fault. But instead, both of them helped each other up, put their arms around one another, and walked to the finish line together. Coming in second to last place in last place. Amos, the guy who clipped uh, Jewett, actually let Jewett pass in front of him to finish second to last instead of last. We look at that, and the truth is both of those guys lost. They lost the race. But if we were to ask ourselves... What type of person do you want to be at the end of your life? Do you want to be like Usain Bolt, who won the race and it was a ton of fun, and we'll remember it? Or do you want to be the type of person that in the midst of tragedy was able to put your arm around the person who caused it and walked together to the finish line? When we hear that, we know that intrinsically, yeah, indeed, losing is actually better than winning. Losing is better than winning. God doesn't call us to win. And we see that in the Beatitudes that we just read, that part of the Sermon on the Mount that we are in today. Now, um, where we're going today, we're going to spend a good chunk of time looking at these Beatitudes as a whole. Like, what are they? What do, what do we do with them? make some general observations, and then we're going to go into each one individually. Okay, so that's kind of the two halves of where we're going. So um, I, I've listed out on your, your, worship, uh, your worship order each individual uh, beatitude for you to take kind of specific notes, if, if you will. There's no fill in the blank in those middle sections, but that's okay. Just kind of take down whatever you want. But that's where we're going. So uh, if you will dive in with me, let's, let's start talking about the scriptures. Okay, so when we are in chapter 5, and we get all of these statements, blessed are, if we get this statement about blessed are wrong, if we understand that wrongly, what Jesus is saying there, we're going to understand the entirety of this little introduction on the sermon wrong, but we're also going to understand the whole sermon wrong, because this sets the tone and tells us what the sermon is actually about. Blessed are dot, dot, dot. Blessed are. So what do we mean by this? Is this an active divine blessing from God? When we hear the word blessing, that's generally what we think, right? In English, it's something that God does to us. But the truth is, that's not actually what the underlying Greek verb is saying here. There's really no English translation for the word that's happening there. The, the, the word is makaraos, and I'm going to give you a very fancy word today. I want you to remember this. Uh, remember this. It is makarism. It comes from makaraos. Makarism. Now, that, that's not a markism. It's not a macaroon, but a makarism. And uh, here's the definition for it. It's not an active blessing for God, but it's a statement that declares this is a happy or flourishing person or state of being. It's a statement that declares this is a happy or flourishing person or state of being. That's the word that's going on here. And it's, 
there's no single word that really captures this. Some translations will translate this word happy. Most translations will do blessed because, quite honestly, translators are a little afraid to change words that people are familiar with because people will be like, oh, this Bible has changed things. And it's like, well, our just understanding of that word blessing has kind of evolved over time and has become a little more narrow than it used to be. But this is a descriptive statement that Jesus is making. Not an active blessing from God, but a description of the happy or flourishing life. Last week I used that word a lot, that idea of flourishing. And that's why I'm, I'm using it. It's because of this word. It's the flourishing life. Or in other words, it's kind of like congratulations. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. Congratulations to those who mourn. One commentator has used the phrase, it's an Australian phrase, and I'm, I'm not going to attempt the accent, so, you know, I know, Dale, you criticized my accent earlier this week, but uh, just, good on you, mate, okay? So, no, that's not an Australian accent, but just, they would, they use that, that word. We don't use that here in our country, but good on you, good job. Basically, this is the flourishing life. This is even kind of evident in the word Beatitudes, the word Beatitudes doesn't mean this is the attitude you should have, and it doesn't come from the word blessed. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blissful or happy. So that is the Beatitudes. We even see this in the Old Testament. You guys may be familiar with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. It starts out with, blessed is the man. In Hebrew, there are two words that in English we translate blessed, and this one is talking about this kind of descriptive idea of the flourishing life. There's another word that describes God's active blessing on his covenant people, but it's not this word. And in Greek, there's a very similar thing that's picked up in the New Testament. Uh, and in the, in the Old Testament Greek translation called the Septuagint, this word for blessed, this Hebrew word, is always translated, every single time, translated the same word that we get in the Beatitudes this happy or flourishing idea. And what this creates, this is basically saying, don't you want to be like this? Hence the title of today's sermon, don't you want this? I mean, wouldn't you rather be a tree planted by streams of water than chaff that gets blown away? It's basically a way for an author to appeal to self-interest and a way for them to say, hey, yeah, this is the way you should live. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are ultimately wisdom literature. Kind of laying out, hey, here's the path of life. Will you take it? It's wisdom literature. This is how you can become the person you ought to be. It's the genre that it fits in. So we get this, this, this picture, flourishing. And Jesus starts with that. Flourishing is the, the poor in spirit. All right. So let's talk about these Beatitudes a little bit more, kind of in general, but some specific things. There is a contrast in the two halves. You get the first half, blessed are the, and then, you know, kind of dot, 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 and then a second clause, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
This statement, blessed are the, here, this will be a little more clear, kind of in, in, starting in verse 4. These are not if-then statements. They're not, hey, if you do this, then God will give this to you. It's not that type of thing. Instead, it's an invitation to live this kind of life because this kind of life has this result over here. It's not do this so that God will give you this. It's be this type of person because it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing. It's an invitation through description. This flourishing life comes because of the second half. That word for can also be translated because, so maybe an easy way to read this would be flourishing are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Flourishing are the meek because they shall inherit the earth, and so on. So in this first half, Jesus redefines what flourishing looks like. Because when you look at these things, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, all of these things. You look at that and you're like, is, is that really flourishing? Because that, that's kind of rough. You're sacrificing a lot if that's the type of life that you live. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungry, merciful, pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted. I mean, Jesus comes right out and says, you're flourishing if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Like, okay, Jesus, um, I don't know about you, but suffering's not really high on my list of things I would like to experience today. When I thought about the, the, the flourishing life when I woke up, I thought about all the fun things I wanted to do and about people being nice to me, not, oh, getting persecuted. So Jesus is reorienting our perspective on what it means to truly flourish. Because our tendency is to believe that flourishing comes from winning, success, triumph, victory, having everything go my way. That's what I want. If I'm honest, I don't want this. But we get the second half of these macarisms. The second half, and that is where the beauty awaits. Now, in verse 3, in verse 10, you get a second half that's identical. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then down in verse 8, or sorry, verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the eighth beatitude. So the first beatitude and the eighth, they match. For theirs is the, first, is the kingdom of heaven. But then the middle six, the middle six, you have this future perspective. For they shall, for they shall, for they shall, over and over again. You're looking towards the future at what God is going to do. For they shall. So those who are in the kingdom of heaven are going to be getting something. This passage kind of gives us the tension of the already but not yet. The kingdom is here. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But a lot of those blessings of the kingdom, those wonderful aspects of actual kingdom life that we long for, they're not here yet. We await them. And so Jesus is saying, you are flourishing now as you await these future realities. So that brings us to our first main point. Jesus redefines flourishing as suffering while we wait 
for the fullness of His kingdom. So Jesus redefines flourishing as suffering while we wait for the fullness of His kingdom. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. He's not just saying like, yeah, you're flourishing if your life is terrible. Great, good on you, mate. No, He's saying it's flourishing to be awaiting the coming kingdom. And we endure this life. God works in our hearts through this suffering. We're flourishing people as we look to the future at what God is going to do. Because that promise is sure. And the ways that we suffer now, they will be answered. There is an answer to it in the end. In the end. Uh, One theologian from long ago basically used this analogy. He said, it's like a plow going through the dirt. A plow going through the dirt doesn't seem to help the life of the soil. You know, it's tearing it up. That doesn't seem like flourishing. It's all getting turned over. But while it's tearing through that dirt, plowing through it, it's preparing the soil for fruitful growth. You can't have fruitful growth unless you turn up the soil. And so in our life, these beatitudes are pointing to that. You are flourishing as your life is turned over, as your idols are exposed, as you understand more and more of the type of person that God calls you to be, as you understand more and more of what God is like. We're going to see at the end of today that these are like what God is like. They're not just random things. They're God's very heart. Congratulations to the losers of this world, those who willingly lay it all down because they are and will be the true winners as God works in their heart, as he brings them to the end. I want to give a little bit of application just for the, the general, this general perspective. And I want it to be corporate, actually. As Christians, corporately, we should be quick to reject a strategy that revolves around winning or triumph or looking good. We shouldn't be seeking power or winning at all costs. Instead, we should be seeking to lay our lives down. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't advocate for change. But it does mean that we trust in the fullness of the coming kingdom, not in our own efforts, not in our ability to run over all of our opponents and say, well, the outcome was good, the ends justify the means. But here Jesus says that the means are in and of themselves an end. They're flourishing. It is good to lay our lives down. I have an example of kind of where this has worked out in church life recently. Uh, You may be familiar with stuff that has gone on in the Southern Baptist Convention over the past few years. Uh, There was a big kind of sex abuse scandal of uh, basically pastors who were abusing people managed to kind of find work in other churches because those kind of in the upper echelon of the the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, didn't really uh, let people know or publicly keep good records of sex offenders and the like. And, well, there's a big kerfuffle because those in charge wanted to keep attorney-client privilege during an investigation, an internal investigation that the SBC was doing. They had hired an outside firm to come and do this internal investigation, and they wanted to drop. uh, A lot of people in the convention were calling on this leadership team to drop attorney-client privilege so that they could share what had actually happened. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing and a lot of uh, kind of pushback against that, but eventually uh, the... Because it's a democratic body, the convention spoke and they basically forced the executive committee to waive attorney-client privilege. And they said, and the excuse for not waiving it was, well, this could ruin the convention. We could be under threat of lawsuit. Terrible things could happen. 
What would happen to the ministry? What would happen to the Great Commission? What would happen to our mission efforts if we went bankrupt? And people said, we don't care. We need to do the right thing. And praise be to God, they did. And what it revealed was a staggering amount of corruption and how there actually was a list of problematic abusers and nothing was done with it. People could have been protected had people been willing to lay down their rights or their, uh, their desire to look good and instead just suffered the consequences or suffered the disgrace and the shame, oh, things would have gone way better and less harm would have been done. May we be that kind of church that is not afraid of suffering at the expense of doing the right thing. May we always choose to do the right thing. All right. You guys ready to dive into each beatitude in our time left today? All right, let's talk about the first one. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This question even came up at our AM Theologians time this week. Every Tuesday at 6 a.m., you're all invited, so please join us. Uh, Yeah, does this mean to be sad or depressed? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And uh, the word that came up that, that uh, Jim actually proposed was a contrite heart. And I was like, yes, that's, that's exactly it, a contrite heart. It's somebody who says, I have nothing to bring to the table spiritually. And Jesus says, this is the character of the kingdom. The kingdom is comprised of people who are broken and don't stand on what they've done and don't say, look at how awesome I am, but instead... They are poor in spirit. So an application for this, basically what I'm going to do for each of these Beatitudes is kind of define what it's saying, uh, kind of give you a little bit of Old Testament background there if if there's time, uh, and then give you a little bit of application. So um, an application for this one is basically just be quick to confess. Just assume that you are broken, and when people confront you, be quick to ask for uh, for forgiveness. Be somebody who is quick to confess. Be open about your brokenness. There's no need to hide it. We're not fooling anybody. Oftentimes we try to fool ourselves, but the reality is we are broken people. Let's be broken. All right, mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or flourishing are those who mourn, because they shall be comforted. Those who mourn. Now this actually comes from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 3. And for us to understand what mourning means, we need to look at this. So Isaiah says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, little backdrop of what's going on in chapter 61 is Isaiah is talking about those who are mourning over the destruction of God's people. Jerusalem has been destroyed. His people, the people have been exiled. Isaiah is looking forward to that time. And so he's saying, blessed are those who mourn over this, that things aren't right in the world, that sin has destroyed God's people. So Jesus picks up this idea of mourning 
it's, isn't it beautiful? Like the Beatitudes don't just pop out of nowhere. Jesus didn't just make them up. He's, he's using his Old Testament and building his theology and bringing it to the people. Sorry, a little, little side note. It gets me excited. But he, so Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, who are broken over the state of the world. It's not just those who are bereaved or those who are sad, but those who are mourning over a particular thing. Those who are mourning over sin and over the state of the world. Blessed are those. And what will happen to them? They shall be comforted. God's restoration is is coming and is comforting. God's restoration is coming. Now, for application for this, mourn your sin. See it as bad. Don't just brush it aside, but mourn it. Say, Lord, yeah, indeed, this is not good. So the first one is like embracing brokenness with being poor in spirit. And this is mourning over it. Not just being like, oh, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me and running the other way. Oh, Lord, this is terrible. Thank you for your forgiveness. All right, let's talk about meekness. Flourishing are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Now, not Jeremy and Miranda meek, although you guys are flourishing, but the meek. This word also means gentle. You'll see it translated gentle elsewhere. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. Gentle, being gentle, is not the same as weakness or being a pushover, passivity, those types of things. That's not gentle. Gentleness is really strength under power. It's knowing the appropriate amount of strength in a given situation. You can have, imagine this, imagine um, a blue-collar grandfather who's worked with his hands his entire life, covered in calluses, they're strong hands. It's not weak, you know, pastor hands like me. A grandfather who has a newborn grandson, and he holds his grandson for the first time. These strong, calloused hands. He's still gentle. But no one would ever accuse that man of having weak hands. No, he knows how to use his strength appropriately. That's gentleness. Jesus says this of himself, that he is gentle. In Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's the same word as meek. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus pulls this from Psalm 37. It says, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. If you remember, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That comes from Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the land. And in Psalm 37, it's talking about the promised land, talking about how the people of God, those who are meek, would be in the land, the place where God dwells. God would be with them. So blessed are the meek because they will be the ones who remain. They will be the ones who get to be with God living in his promised place. Blessed are the meek. So for application, look at your life and ask the question, where are you brash or argumentative? You know, some people aren't brash and argumentative, but maybe there's one particular area where they can become brash and argumentative. 
Where do you see the need to be right or superior to the people around you? But then also, where do you practice passivity under the excuse of gentleness? Are there areas where you're saying, oh, I'm gentle, but in reality, you're just passive? I think that's a good question to ask on this one as well. So where are you brash? Where are you argumentative? Where are you passive? And then look at replacing that with gentleness. All right, let's talk about hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, I shared this definition from uh, one commentator a while back. Righteousness, at least in Matthew's context, is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. So someone does from the heart what is expected of Jesus' disciples. And what does God say? He says that these people will be satisfied. It's this idea, we, if I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's longing for my heart to actually be that way, for my whole person to be righteous before God. If you're anything like me, you see areas of your life where you're like, man, I just wish it wasn't this way. I'm beset with this sin. It keeps popping up in my life. I long for the day where that sin is completely in the rearview mirror. And I'm fully free, not just from its power, but its presence as well. We are free from its power now in Christ, but we still live in the presence of sin. And Jesus tells us that one day we will be satisfied. As we hunger and thirst for that whole person righteousness where sin has no grip on us at all, one day we will be satisfied. Praise be to God for that. Oh, I long for that day. I long for that day. So, application for this. Don't be complacent with where you are. Don't be complacent. Hunger and thirst to grow. Look at your life and say, how can I be different? How can more of my external life line up with the internals? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to have cohesion between the spiritual outer life that maybe people see in the church and the internal life with Christ. All right, merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Now, if you remember from a while back when we were looking at Matthew chapter 1, we saw that mercy is linked with righteousness. All these things go together, by the way. And we saw that righteousness was popping up in Isaiah 61 when we were reading a bit of that. But mercy is linked with righteousness. Righteousness has a merciful heart. It seeks to forgive. Mercy is not holding people to account. It's saying, no, I'm not going to deliver punishment or something like that on you. And mercy costs you something. Because you don't get restitution. Mercy is costly. You don't get to see things made right by the other person. But Jesus says that there's a solution. It's good to give mercy. Congratulations to the one who gives mercy because they shall receive mercy. For every mercy you give, God gives us far more mercy in full. What a beautiful truth. Pureness in heart. This isn't simple moral purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, as if people who keep themselves squeaky clean. But it's those who aren't just laboring over outward purity alone, but a whole person orientation of seeking God. My whole person desires the Lord. Jesus pulls this from Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. So you see, this person has clean hands, a pure heart. It's not just an internal thing and an external thing, it's both. These things are together, together as one. And this person is the one that gets to be with God. This person is seeking the face of God who longs to be with the Lord. And Jesus says that these pure in hearts will actually see God. It'll be like Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God together. One day that will be true again, that we are with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. We will see him face to face. Application for this. Do you yearn for God or do you yearn for his stuff? Do you yearn for God or do you yearn for his stuff? Does your whole heart just long to know him because he's good and it's who he is? Or do you just want the great blessings that come along with him. I think oftentimes we want the joy of the Lord, maybe without the Lord. Let's seek his face. All right, peacemakers, we've got to get moving. This is not just living at peace, but entering into the difficult space of making peace between others. It is being at peace with the people around us, but it's also somebody who intercedes with others and seeks to make peace. If you remember back in our series on Philippians, we saw Paul even talk about this. He pleaded with the church at Philippi to help two women, Yodia and Syntyche, agree. And as believers, we are people who, are, ought, who ought to be making peace. Peace. And Jesus says that these shall be called the sons of God. Not in the sense that they get a special status, but in the sense that they are like God. Children are like their parents. God is a peacemaker. He made peace with us, sending Christ to die for us on the cross. We weren't at peace with God. We were at war, and we were the ones who started the war. God is a peacemaker himself. And as we seek to be making peace with the people around us, We are exhibiting the character of God himself. So what's one relationship that you need to pursue peace? Where you need to pursue peace? Also, what's one relationship that you can help make peace? So what's maybe one conflict you have with somebody else? And then maybe what's one conflict between others that you need to step into graciously, tactfully, wisely, and help make peace? just as God makes peace. All right, persecution. Persecution for righteousness' sake. And this isn't just persecution because, you know, we feel a certain way or are a certain color, but this is being a loser for Christ. So not just unjust suffering, but unjust suffering because you're a believer. And again, Jesus says, this is the type of people that's in the kingdom of heaven that we endure suffering. And this is the flourishing life. This is a good promise because it just reveals that we have a true home, that we belong to a particular kingdom. I think about it this way. If I, as an American, were to go to a nation that currently does not like America, say either Iran or North Korea or somewhere like that, and I go there and people look at me sideways or dislike me because of my, my heritage, because of my citizenship, I'm not going to feel bad about that. 
all it does is reveal that I'm from somewhere else, that I have a different home, a home I'm proud of. And the same when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, all it does is show that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. That is our home. So for us, for application, what is one circumstance where you're tempted to deny Christ? And I don't just mean flat out say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. But maybe one area where you bend the rules a little bit or you try to fit in a little bit more than you ought. Those subtle ways that you seek to deny Christ. What are ways that you seek or are tempted to deny Christ? That'll reveal where you need to be strengthened. The last beatitude. Some people say this isn't one, but it clearly starts with blessed are. So, it's one. I told you that Matthew loves the number three. Nine is a multiple of three. I think it's probably best to view the beatitudes as eight plus one, because this one is really an elaboration on the one that came before. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. But it's different because it's blessed are you. All the other ones have been this kind of abstract idea out here. But Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and says, Blessed are you. Blessed are you. The people who are in the kingdom. That's us. Jesus is speaking to his people. Blessed are you. We're going to save the bulk of unpacking this for next week because it also fits with the next section in the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanted to just dwell for a moment in the beauty that Jesus addresses his children. All of this is addressed to his children. But that he would take time and say, blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted. It's beautiful. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the Beatitudes. When you look at all nine of these, Jesus did all of them. Every single last one. He was humble before God the Father. He was poor in spirit. He was perfect, but he still came to the Father with open hands. He mourned. He was meek. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful. He was pure in heart. He was a peacemaker, and he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. That is who Jesus was. God is this way himself. When we think of the Sermon on the Mount, when we think of the Beatitudes, we're not encountering a God who is completely different from these things. We are encountering a God who is revealing his very nature. And Jesus says that this is the flourishing life. And he knows, he knows, it is not a lie to say that this is the flourishing life. Jesus walked it himself. And yes, it was a life of sorrow, but oh, the joy that Christ had. Nobody's going to look at Jesus, which, I mean, just... Can you imagine standing before Jesus and being like, Jesus, you wasted your life. Or you must have had a terrible life and I bet you wish you didn't live it. You'd be like, heck no. I rejoice in my life. I am the good man. I am the flourishing man. I am the wise man. I am the man that all people ought to aspire to be. And he's more than that. He's God himself who sacrificed himself for us. And because he, he, these things are because he sacrificed himself. Like th this character led him to sacrifice himself for us to pay for our sin on the cross. So we need to reorient our perspective on flourishing to see that this is indeed good. Jesus says it's good. He lived it. Why should we expect any sort of different life than Jesus Christ himself? If Jesus walked through these things while he lived out this type of life, we should expect to live it out too. So, that leads us to our last point. Life is found in death. 
Life is found in death. You only can flourish when you die. Life is found in death. And by death and suffering, I don't necessarily mean just terrible things actively happening to us moment by moment, but I mean choosing the things in life that are difficult, things that cost us, dying to ourselves, things like extending mercy, that type of death. And maybe for some of us, a literal death. So life is found in death. May we embrace that beautiful truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you give us a picture of the flourishing life. Father, thank you for loving us even though we have fallen far short of these things. And we look at them and we don't think of them as good or flourishing. But Father, will you graciously reorient our perspective? Help us to trust you in all of this. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.